Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 415. We got Brad Stolberg back, and he is bringing a whole lot more insight, this time talking about passion and balance and how do you deal with that. So you'll learn, one, the three common paradoxes of passion, two, the dangers of rooting your identity to a passion, and three, why self-aware imbalance is often a perfectly acceptable choice. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F415. Now here's Brad's story. Brad Stolberg researches, writes, speaks, and coaches on health and human performance. His coaching practice includes working with athletes, entrepreneurs, and executives on their mental skills and overall well-being. He's a best-selling author of the books, The Passion Paradox and Peak Performance, and a columnist at Outside Magazine. Brad's also written for the New York Times, New York Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Wired, Forbes, and the Los Angeles Times. Previously, Stolberg worked as a consultant for McKinsey & Company, where he counseled some of the world's top executives on a broad range of issues. He's an avid athlete and outdoor enthusiast, living in North Carolina with his wife, son, and two cats. You can follow him on Twitter at bstolberg. Thanks to Brad for sharing his time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Brad. Brad, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your next book, but first I want to hear about your love of cats. <laughs> My love of cats. How do you know I love cats? Well, there's a form I have guests fill out. <laughs> oh, did I say I love cats on that form? <laughs> oh, yeah, you totally, you just gave it up that you love cats. It's also yeah. in your bio that you live in Northern California with wife, son, and two cats. So you can't escape it. I've got two, as you said, Sonny and Bryant, and they are endearing, adorable creatures. It's like having two of the goofiest roommates that are just there, and they don't pay rent. Well, tell me, what are some of their goofy behaviors? The goofy behaviors, well, let's see. So Sonny, who is an orange tabby, she has, my wife and I joke, we call it office hours. So she is the cuddliest, most loving cat between 1 and 4 p.m. Otherwise, you can't touch her. Hmm. Uh, she is, it's so bizarre. Like she'll come find you wherever you are in the afternoon and plop on your lap and just love on you. But then when 4 p.m. rolls around, she wants nothing to do with it. And then Bryant, everything about Bryant is interesting. Like we would have to record for hours and hours. I just have to follow him around with a video camera, but he's just a total mess in the best way possible. All right. Well, it sounds like that's, that's keeping things interesting. And I also want to hear about some of the most interesting, surprising, fascinating discoveries you've made when researching the passion paradox. 
Yeah, that sounds good. That's a little bit more concrete than Bryant the Cat. <laughs> well, yeah, lay it on us. Yeah, so the book is called The Passion Paradox, and the title is pretty telling in the sense that the biggest discovery is so much of what conventional thinking around passion holds is all paradox. And there are three main paradoxes. The first is that people are told to find your passion. And there's an expectation that you're going to stumble upon something that will be like love at first sight. And you'll immediately feel energized and you'll know this is the thing that I'm passionate about. That's not how it works. In the vast, vast, vast majority of the cases, individuals cultivate passion over time and it doesn't start out perfect. And it's that very belief and expectation that something should be perfect right away that actually gets in a lot of people's way from ever growing into a passion. The second big paradox is this notion that if you just follow your passion, you'll have a great life. And passion is a double-edged sword. Passion can absolutely be a wonderful gift, and it can lead to great accomplishments. It could lead to a meaningful life. It can lead to great energy. At the same time, passion can become a destructive curse. And that can happen in a few ways. One is that the inertia of what you're doing gets so strong that you can't see beyond it. And you get so swept up in what you're doing that everything else falls away. And for a period of time, that might be okay. But in the long term, a lot of people end up with regrets. And then the second way that passion can take a negative turn is when you become more passionate about the external validation you get from doing something than the thing itself. And this is a really, really, really subtle thing that happens to people. You start doing something because you're interested in it. If you're lucky, you cultivate a passion. You love it. And then you start doing really well. And when you start doing well, you start getting recognized for doing well. And often what will happen is without someone even noticing it, the lotus of their passion shifts from the activity to all the recognition. So you love writing and then you make a bestseller list and then suddenly you're only happy if you're on bestseller lists. You love your job and suddenly you're only happy if you're constantly noticed in meetings and you're constantly getting promoted. So it's this fine line between being passionate about the activity itself versus being passionate about the recognition you get from it. The former, here's the paradox, right? The former, if you're passionate about the activity, that's associated with overall life satisfaction and high performance. The latter, if you become passionate about the results, which is called obsessive passion, that is associated with burnout, angst, and depression. Yeah. So there's that. And then the third thing, I'll lay it all on you because that's what you asked for. And, and then we can dive in in more detail, perhaps. The third thing is that I can't tell you how many times since I've graduated college, which is a little bit over a decade ago, I've been told two things. One is to find and follow my passion. And the other is to live a balanced life. And this makes no sense because passion and balance are completely antithetical. Like by definition, when you're passionate about something, the world narrows, and it's the thing that you're passionate about that is going to consume you. So that seems opposite to balance. And if you ask people when they feel most alive, very rarely does someone say it was you know, when I had perfect balance. Often what you'll hear is it was when I was falling in love, or when I was training for my first marathon, or when I was launching a business, or when I had a new kid. Those are not very balanced times. They're describing times when they felt like they were like, being consumed by something. Yet if you ask people over the course of a life, what, what does it mean to live a good life? Most people will say to have balance. So again, both things are true at the same time. So it's really about how can you be passionate, go all in on things, 
get that good energy, but then be able to pivot to other things when the time is right. And that's so much easier to say than to actually practice. Brad, you are a master. Thank you. <laughs> that is so much good stuff. And we, we could spend hours unpacking that, maybe even more hours discussing this than the cat, I might say, in terms of all the nuances to be explored. The nuance of Brian's behavior. <laughs> he contains multitudes, Pete, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, boy. So let's have some fun with this. All right. Well, I think each of those things you said makes great sense to me and, and sparks all kinds of curiosity. So uh, why don't we just dig into each in practice? So, okay, for the find your passion advice, you say we kind of have a little bit of an expectation or hope that it's going to be love at first sight. And in practice, it's not. It's more of a, a cultivation over time. So can you explain a little bit for what does the progression look like most often in terms of when folks got a passion alive at work for them, how did they get there? So what's interesting is the first thing that's very important is this mindset shift. So again, if you have the expectation that you're just going to stumble into an activity and you're going to find your passion, that is the foremost barrier to actually having a passion because almost nothing is great right off the bat. And what's very interesting is the research and passion parallels the research and love. So individuals that want to find the perfect partner, they end up constantly seeking versus someone that goes in and says, you know what, like I'm going to pursue good enough and I'm going to cultivate it and nourish it. And maybe 30 years from now, it will be perfect. And there's all kinds of research in relationships that shows that that mindset tends to lead to lasting love and very much the same with passion. So going in and thinking of it less as this lightning striking and more as a curiosity for the things that interest you and then pursuing those interests, that's the conduit into what becomes passion. And then when you're pursuing the interests, the research is very clear here that there are three key things that help something perhaps become rooted in your life as a passion. And this is born out of the psychological theory called self-determination theory. And what that states is that if an activity offers you autonomy, so you have some control over what you're doing and when you're doing it, if it offers you competence or mastery, so there's a path of progression of improvement, and if there's a sense of belonging, and whether that's physical belonging, you're actually working in a team or with other people, or if it's more psychological belonging. So you're picking up a line where there have been craftspeople before you and there will be after you. Those three things tend to help interests transition from merely being an interest or a hobby into a passion. I'm intrigued by the autonomy point because as I think about some passions, very much are kind of team sports, if you will. It could actually even be sports. Hey, it's basketball. Play the basketball on the team. Or it could be music. I I'm in the orchestra. Or it could be entrepreneurship. Hey, my team is doing this thing. So how are, are you defining autonomy here? So it's a great question. Autonomy doesn't necessarily mean that you're going at it alone, but more so that there is room for you to chart your own path. So you might be playing on a team for sure. I mean, if you have a coach that tells you exactly, and I mean exactly how to style your game and what you should do minute by minute, day by day, that probably won't be so happy. Whereas if you have some room to explore yourself and decide how you want to craft your game, same thing with a musician, perhaps. There's definitely autonomy in how you practice. And most musicians, at least those that have passion, they're in orchestras or they're in arrangements where they also have some autonomy to explore their own style of music. And in a workplace setting, it's, this is just the difference between good management and micromanagement. Someone under good management should feel autonomy to drive their work, make decisions, take risks. 
someone that's being micromanaged often doesn't feel that. Okay, I got you. A great example to make this really concrete is actually what you're doing right now. And I know that you're passionate about your podcast. And my guess is that when you first started going into pod, like you didn't know podcasting was going to be the thing. And my guess is also that you probably weren't great right off the bat. That's true. There was a line of progression. And yet with a podcast, you have full autonomy. It's your show. You decide who you're going to interview. You just you decide the flow. There's clear mastery and progression. I bet like this episode is going to sound a lot different than your first one. And then there's, of course, belonging because you're sharing this with your audience and you're getting to meet and have interesting conversations with people that have similar interests to you. So I think that there's no, it's not ironic that podcasting has taken off because again, it's something that people can start as an interest. Very few people expect to be great right away. And it fulfills those three criteria really clearly. Indeed, it does. Well, and I'd love to get your take on it. Well, what are some things, (laughs) are there some activities or pursuits that by these criteria cannot become someone's passion? Yeah, there are plenty. (laughs) (laughs) I think the first is that if you find yourself in a workplace situation where you are being terribly micromanaged or where everything that you do is pretty murky, and what I mean by that is there are no objective barometers of whether or not you're improving or doing a good job, those are the kinds of jobs where people tend to get pretty frustrated and either burn out or they just kind of accept it and go through the motions. I guess what I'm thinking is that the activity in a different environment or context could provide autonomy or mastery. Yes, totally. It's often context dependent, not activity dependent. And I think this is really important for managers that are listening out there. You want your employees to be passionate. And your job is then to create those conditions where people have the ability to pursue what interests them. And they have autonomy, they have some sense of progression or mastery, and they feel like they belong. And the flip side is, if if you're being managed and you don't feel that, it's a great opportunity to have a conversation with who is ever managing you about those things, or perhaps it's time to find a new job. Okay, well, there it is. So that's how passion comes about. You're curiously pursuing something that's interesting. And then if you got those ingredients of autonomy or pursuing confidence, mastery, and sense of belonging, that can lead to, hey, we got a passion here. Yes. And then the second paradox, right, is now, awesome, I'm passionate. Like, it's all downhill from here. Life is going to be great. And the common trap is that life is great. And then suddenly you start crushing it at your passion. And people start recognizing that. And then you get attached to that recognition. And in the worst case, your entire identity fuses with that recognition. So you're only as good as your last podcast, or you're only as good as the last project that you took on. And even worse, you're only as good as how people received the last podcast or how people received the last project that you took on. And that's a very precarious position to be in because that can set you up for all kinds of highs and lows and in a really fragile sense of self-worth and identity. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. What's coming to mind for me right now is this interview in which, uh, I think it was on Ellen, in which Ronda Rousey, the ultimate fighter, who she lost a big match championship match. Maybe I don't know the details and she was on Ellen talking about it and she's just crying and it's powerful because well, one, Hey, this is a tough fighter (laughs) person who's who's crying. And two, she really articulates that notion in terms of like, well, if I'm not a champion, what am I? Yeah, that's hard. And as I said, obsessive passion is associated with anxiety, depression, burnout. And then it's also associated with cheating. And what's really interesting is you look at someone like Elizabeth Holmes, who is the the former founder and CEO of Theranos, which is the the kind of sham pharmaceutical company, all kinds of 
fraudulent behavior. When she was being celebrated, it was all about her passion. I believe it was the Washington Post ran a story that basically said, like, Elizabeth Holmes is the most passionate, obsessed person there is, and that's why she's so successful. And yet, it might have been that very passion and that very obsession that led her to lie when things weren't going great in her company. Alex Rodriguez, the baseball player who we now know was using performance-enhancing drugs and steroids throughout his career, when he retired, even after all that, he was interviewed by Forbes for his career advice, and his number one piece of advice was follow your passion. So again, it's this double-edged sword where, yeah, passion's great, but if all you care about is hitting the most home runs or all you care about is being the company that everyone's talking about, well, when things don't go well, like you're going to do anything possible to remedy that, even if it's not so ethical. Yeah. So that's, you said double-edged sword. That's one way is you come attached to the sort of validations and externals instead of the thing itself. And it can get you. And I want to be, I don't want to just be negative. So let me also, so there are practices, right, that can help you remedy this. And there are a whole bunch in the book, but the one that I find the most powerful to mention here is just this notion of getting back to the work. Mm-hmm. So after a huge success, like, yes, pause, celebrate, feel good about it. Do that for 24, maybe 48 hours, but then get back to doing the work. There's something about doing the work that is so humbling and that on a very visceral level, like you feel it in your brain and in your bones, it reminds you that, hey, I like the work. As much as the validation feels good, what really makes me tick is the process of doing the work. A concrete example in my own life as a writer, when I write a story that has a very positive reception, or for that matter, a very negative reception, a story I thought I would do great that doesn't, I'll let myself have those emotions for a day, and then I really try to make a discipline of within 24 hours, starting on the next thing. Because otherwise, I can get very caught up in this kind of cycle of like praise or negativity. And then once that cycle grows roots, it becomes harder to step out of. Yeah, that's that's really good stuff. And as I'm thinking there about the, the double-edged sword, you talk about consumption. I guess that's in the third paradox. So it's a sword, both in terms of you feeling like you're pursuing a great life and loving it and digging it and, and having tons of fun with it, but also getting tempted perhaps to to follow the external. And I'm curious, you've got that practice there with regard to, hey, when you get the celebration or, or the, the victory, you celebrate, then you return to the work. I guess I'm curious, are there any little internal indicators or like kind of early warning signs you might be on the lookout for? Like, wait a minute, alert, alert, <laughs> you know, passion is starting to, to get externalized, you know, correct now. Yeah, it's a great question. There are. The first one that comes to mind for me is if you notice massive changes in your mood based on how well something does in the outside world. So if you're in a great mood and you go into a meeting and an idea you have isn't well received or you don't get to to share as much as you would have hoped and the rest of your day is completely ruined, eh, if that happens once or twice, fine. If that's an ongoing pattern, like yikes. If you do anything that has a kind of more broad social measurement scheme, and what I'm thinking here is social media. So if you're kind of obsessively checking your retweets or likes or comments, that is a sign of, uh uh-oh, like, am I really in this to connect with other people and to create good work? Or am I in this because it feels really good to see how many people liked my post? And if it's the latter, then again, like what happens when you have a post that no one likes? Well, you feel like shit. And I think it's important to state here that no one is 100% like disciplined or harmoniously passionate. Like we're humans. Everyone likes to feel good. 
The thing is that you just have to realize that, hey, that's a normal behavior. And if I catch myself engaging in it too often, it's time to get back to the work. So don't judge yourself and be like, oh, I'm, I'm obsessively passionate. I'm doomed. It's more like, oh, wow, I, I noticed myself caring quite a bit about external validation. Let me think about why did I get into this thing in the first place? And have I actually done the activity itself recently? And if not, I, I should dive back into it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Got it. Well, so now let's, let's talk about this passion and balance being antithetical. Passion can consume you. And so then, yeah, how do you play that game optimally in terms of if you want to feel alive, so you want to have the passion, but you also don't want to, I guess, let everything else fall apart in, <laughs> in your life. What are your thoughts there? So what I found in the, the research and reporting on the book is that there's an expectation, a cultural expectation, to have balance day to day. And when people hear balance, at least those people that I've surveyed, they often think or they often describe everything in its right place and right proportion day after day. I wake up at this hour, I get my kids off to school, I do my yoga, I go to work, I listen to a podcast, I leave work at five, I come home, I watch a TV show, I spend time with my kids, I cook dinner, I have passionate sex with my romantic partner, and I sleep eight hours, and then I do the same thing the next day. If you can do that, great. If you can do that and you're happy, great. Don't change anything. Um, that's a great life. But I say that kind of laughing because most people can't do that. And then they get frustrated or they think that they're doing something wrong. When in fact, nothing's wrong. There are times when it is good to be imbalanced. And those are the times when you're really passionate about one of those elements in your life. So to try to force balance day in and day out, again, if it's there, great, roll with it. But if it feels like you're having to force it, that's a pretty like narrow contracting space. And it's much better to allow yourself to actually go all in on the things that make you tick. And here's the big kicker is so long as you have enough self-awareness to realize when that the trade-off is no longer worth it. I'm going to train for this Olympic cycle at the expense of my family and my friends. Okay. What happens if you don't make this Olympic cycle or what happens to the next Olympic cycle? That Those are the questions that people have to ask because as you're pursuing this passion, the inertia of the thing that you're doing like, is really strong. And when that takes hold, it's hard to have the self-awareness to evaluate, well, am I prioritizing? Am I evaluating these trade-offs as I should be? Uh, there's some fascinating research in the book that shows that individuals that are in the throes of a passion, even if it's a productive passion, so someone training for the Olympics or an entrepreneur starting a company, they, they show very similar changes in brain activity as somebody with an eating disorder. <laughs> and that is because when someone with an eating disorder looks in the mirror, they often don't see someone that is skin and bones. They actually often see someone that is, that is fat, that is obese, overweight. They have a distorted view of reality. Well, what is training for the Olympics or trying to start a company other than a distorted view of reality? <laughs> you know, we know only 0.1% of athletes ever make the Olympics. We know that something like 99% of startups fail. So it's kind of delusional. And in a neurochemical level, it's the same thing that you'd see in someone with a pathological delusion. The difference is, in the case of passion, you're pointing it at something that society says is productive, but that doesn't mean it's any less gripping. So the ability to maintain some self-awareness, to look in the mirror and see things as they actually are, is so, so important when pursuing a passion. 
Oh, wow. That went in a very different direction. I thought that the Where'd passion... Where'd you think it was going? Yeah. I mean, you said passion and then eating disorder, brain activity the same. I was like, oh, okay. So it's sort of like that that obsessiveness. But no, you, you went in terms of like what we're actually perceiving Yeah. in terms of what is right in front of our face. That's wild. I mean, there, I'm sure that there's some relationship too to the obsessiveness, but it's really, it's a perception thing. And this is a common thing. You hear about marriages falling apart when someone's starting a business and, and the significant other it's like the person completely loses self-awareness. Like the only thing that matters to them is the business and they don't understand that they're being a terrible spouse, a terrible parent, a terrible friend. They're just so wrapped up in what they're doing. And again, I, I'm a firm believer that as long as you communicate with the other important people in your life, that those trade-offs are okay to make so long as you're consciously making them. And once you stop consciously making them, that's when all kinds of problems start. Yeah, I hear you. I also want to get your take on sort of how we go about lying to ourselves when we're in the midst of this. Like, what are some kind of watch out words, sentences, phrases that if you hear yourself saying them, that might make you think, wait a tick, uh, let's double check that. It can be similar to another example, and, and this is this is back to the paradox of passion, is addiction. So the definition of addiction, or at least the definition that I like to use, and, and this is one that's pretty widely accepted in both the scientific and clinical communities, is the relentless pursuit of something despite negative consequences. And I would argue that the definition of passion is the relentless pursuit of something with productive consequences. Oftentimes, those consequences are socially constructed and socially defined. An example, an Olympic swimmer spends between six and eight hours a day staring at a line in the water. They do this at the exclusion of their family, of other interests, with the remaining time they have, they eat a meticulous diet and they sleep. If that isn't like abnormal behavior, then I don't know what is. <laughs> the difference is that it's pointed at this thing, being an elite athlete, that society says is productive. Whereas imagine like if swimming wasn't a sport that people celebrated, someone would diagnose that person with some sort of psychological psychiatric disorder. But again, it's because it's pointed at something that society says is productive. So the reason that I, I use that example and I bring in addiction in this despite negative or despite positive consequences, I think the ways that we lie to ourselves, even when we're doing a productive passion, is we ignore the negative consequences or we tell ourselves they don't really matter. And again, it's so hard to maintain self-awareness because there's so much inertia I mean, another example to make this real for listeners is when you fall in love. Generally, when people fall in love, all they can think about is the object of their affection. It's like everything else disappears. And passion can be pretty similar. So again, it has to be a practice of maintaining some self-awareness. And there are concrete things that you can do to keep self-awareness. Well, lay it on us. What's ironic here is that the way to maintain self-awareness in the pursuit of a passion is to get outside of yourself because yourself becomes so wrapped up in what you're doing. It's like this web where only your passion is there. So some very simple things that you can do. One is to put yourself in situations where you're experiencing awe. Go to an art gallery without your phone. Go on a day hike in a forest with no digital devices. There's something about putting yourself in the way of beauty that kind of helps gain perspective and, and resets your brain to, hey, like there's more to life than this thing I'm doing. Another way to help with self-awareness is to have a close group of friends that you can really trust and make sure that they're comfortable calling you out when you can't see for yourself 
And then you have to listen to them. That's the hard part <laughs> because that's when you're going to lie to yourself. Your friend says, whoa, I actually like you're a little bit overkill right now. You're going to say, no, I'm not. You don't know what's going on. You have to make an agreement both with the friend to call you out and yourself to listen to that friend. If you're not comfortable doing that, a really simple mental Jedi trick can be to pretend that one of your good friends was doing exactly what you're doing and asked you for advice. What would you tell that friend? And then do that. It's often very different than what you tell yourself. An example here that comes up often is you get an athlete that gets injured and they're trying to train through the injury, which is so dumb. And then you tell you ask that athlete, well, like if your friend had the exact same issue and was trying to force themselves to the gym today, what would you say? And you tell them, well, don't go to the gym. Better to take a week off now than a year off later. And then you say, well, then why are you walking to the gym right now? <laughs> so it's the ability to step outside of yourself that often helps you see what's best for yourself in the midst of a passion. And then another simple practice is to reflect on mortality. There's something about acknowledging the fact that you're going to die one day that makes real clear what actually matters and helps point you in, in that direction. Yeah. Well, it's good stuff. Yeah. It's heavy and it's excellent. Maybe could you share an example of someone that you've encountered that you think is doing the passion thing really well? Maybe if you can, particularly in sort of their career. Yeah, there are lots of people, <laughs> which is great. It's very feasible and it's very doable. Someone that comes to mind is uh, an executive that I've coached and worked with quite a bit. She is a top five position at a Fortune 25 company. So there's only 125 people in the world it could be. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Mathematically, we're all going to be speculating. That's as much as I'll give, but... Um, <laughs> You guys can do the research. <laughs> and this individual has been so good about setting goals and progression markers that are fully within this person's control and then judging herself on whether or not she executes on those progression markers. Very, very good at ignoring, to a large extent, all the noise around her and what other people think, especially because when you're in a big company like that, so much of that is just political wind. Yeah. And if you get caught in the political wind, you're going to get blown around. So the first thing that comes to mind is a relentless pursuit of the things that you could control and judging yourself only on those things. The other thing is completely sacrificing from this idea of balance and instead thinking about boundaries and presence. And what that means is setting real clear boundaries about these are the times I'm going all in and these are the times I'm going to be going all in with something else. And that can be the difference between work and family and then bringing full presence to those things versus what so many people do. And it's a common trap is when you're at work, you're like 80 percent at work, but 20 percent dealing with family and friends. And when, when you're family and friends, you're 70 percent with family and friends, but 30 percent checking your phone and at work versus being really, really stringent about 100% there and then 100% there. And then evaluating trade-offs and making trade-offs. You have to give up a lot to be a leader in an organization like that. And this individual quarterly reflects on her core values and makes sure that the way that she's spending her time is aligned with those core values and has made some real changes as a result of what's come up. Very nice. Well, Brad, tell me. It's doable, though, which is great because it's actually very doable. It's just that, and, and this is part of the reason, if not the whole reason, that I wrote this book. This is not stuff that I was told going into the workforce. 
not stuff that I was told once I was in the workforce. These vague terms are thrown around, find your passion, follow your passion, have balance. And I wasn't really sure what it meant. And I saw myself falling into some of the traps of the obsessive bad passion. And I also saw myself being so immersed in what I was doing that I was starting to question, like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Maybe it's just a thing that's both good and bad. And when I started looking at the research, it's kind of what I found was that, wow, the way that people talk about this topic, which is so often talked about, is completely out of sync with the truth and the nuance involved. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? It's actually very simple. The Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh says, this is it. And I actually have a little bracelet that just has a charm that says, this is it on it. And I think that that's a wonderful reminder to be present. It's basically like whatever's in front of you, like that's what's happening right now. It's an especially helpful practice for me with a a one-year-old at home, sleepless nights, middle of the night, he's crying. It's really easy to get lost in a pretty negative thought space. But nope, like this is it. This is what's happening right now. How can I be present for it and deal with it? Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So the research that I've been sharing is top of mind for me. And I think just this notion of obsessive versus harmonious passion or the being passionate about results versus the thing itself and just the strong relationship in the former to anxiety, depression, and burnout and in the latter to performance, meaning, and life satisfaction and how they're both passions. It's just like in which direction are they pointed and how at different times of people's lives, they're in different ends of that spectrum. That's, to me, it's so fascinating and so important to be aware of because that can be the difference between a long, fruitful career and, and a not-so-long, rocky career. And how about a favorite book? Oh, my gosh, really? I have so many. How many am I allowed to go over? We'll say three-ish. Three-ish. All right. It's funny. I get asked this question sometimes, and I try not to have just like a canned three books because I really think that the books are kind of, it's like the right book for the right person at the right time. So what are my three favorite books right now? So Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Perseg is a perennial favorite. I think that that book is always going to be in my top three. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to pair it with the sequel, Lila, which is less read, but an equally phenomenal book. So there's that. I'm reading Devotions right now by Mary Oliver, the poet that just passed away, which is a collection of her, her best poems. And that feels like a favorite book right now. That woman can just get to the truth of how things are in so few words in a very lyrical way. So that's a beautiful book. And then my third favorite book right now is probably a book called The Art of Living, which is by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's the Zen master, whose quote, this is it, I just shared. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? Meditation. That is a daily practice for me, and it is so helpful in separating myself from my thoughts and my feelings and allowing me to have a more stable base upon which I work out of and also allowing me to not get so attached to any one thing at any one point in time. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks as you're conveying this wisdom to them? I think it's really important to ask yourself do you control your passion or does your passion control you? That's kind of the heart of it. And if you control your passion, you're in good shape. If your passion controls you, maybe consider some changes. And then equally important is this notion that passion is an ongoing practice. So it's not a one-time thing. So just because you control your passion right now doesn't mean that that can't change. 
And just because your passion might control you right now doesn't mean that can't change. So it's shift in mindset and, and to see passion as a practice and, and there are skills that support that practice and you have to develop them. And Brad, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So you can get in touch on Twitter where I am at B Stahlberg. So first initial of Brad and then my last name. And then through my website, which is www.bradstahlberg.com. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I obviously am going to encourage folks to read the book. I'm proud of it. It's my best work yet. There's a lot of things in there that have certainly had a huge impact on my career and in my life outside of my career. So I'd, I'd love it if people consider reading the book. And then the second thing is to do something active for 30 minutes a day, five days a week. If you are already, great. Keep doing what you're doing. And if not, there are a few things that are more transformative. We've, we spent a lot of time talking about this neat psychological stuff, but just try to move your body regularly. And it doesn't have to be formal exercise. It can be walking. It can be taking the stairs always that adds up to about 30 minutes, but move your body. That's something that's kind of getting more and more lost in our modern world. And, and it's unfortunate. Well, Brad, thank you so much for sharing the goods. And I wish you tons of luck with the book, The Passion Paradox and all your adventures. Thanks so much, Pete. I really enjoy being on your show. I really love Brad's take about setting boundaries and being completely self-aware that we are in an imbalance right now that is intentional. It is deliberate. It is okay. It is going to operate for this predetermined amount of time. Here are the rules of this temporary insanity. And then you get right back to where you're going. And I've often found that's the case in terms of I really want to crank something out that that's new and big and bold and different and awesome. It does take a little bit of violence to the schedule, if you will. And that's part of it. And so long as you know that, going in, eyes wide open. You communicate that with the other stakeholders, like well, here's what's up, spouse, partner, children, boss, rowing team, mates, <laughs> you know, whoever those may be, then you are in a much better place to not just be frazzled and feel guilt and all askew as you're pursuing some passion. So great stuff from Brad. Hope you dug it. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F415. I hope you push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's Steven Landsberg. He is an economist who has some cool perspective associated with using puzzles to sharpen your capacity to think and problem solve and to reach optimal conclusions and to not just assume that people are dumb <laughs> when they generate a conclusion very different than your own. Hope you catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.